Good morning. I told my wife after I preached the last time on Palm Sunday, I'm going to start with a joke this time, so here it goes. Uh, it, it's supposed to snow this week. Oh, wait, that's not a joke. But, uh, you know, it won't stick along too long, only long enough to kill all the flowers. So. <laughs> but no, I want to talk about a story that's much older than that. Um, I want to talk about something that happened during World War II. So from the very start of World War II in 1939, the British had stationed codebreakers at Bletchley Park, a sprawling mansion north of London. And it was here that brilliant mathematicians like Alan Turing worked endlessly to break the code of the Nazi Enigma machines. Famously, this was documented in the 2014 film starring Benedict Cumberbatch named The Imitation Game. <clears throat> and here's an Enigma machine. It's an encryption device that was used to devastating effect by the Nazis during the war. It took two people to operate. So one operator would use the code book to get today's settings. And the machine had three dials that would rotate with each key press. The initial plugboard settings would align which letter stood for which other letter. Easy enough. You press E and it comes out W. But then with each key press, the rotors would all turn at different speeds, changing the substitution. So you may type an E and it comes out W, and then you type E again and it comes out B. So as the first operator types out the message in standard German, lights on the machine would light up, and the second operator would write down the letter that wrote up. So now the message would look like gobbledygook. The message would then be transmitted by standard Morse code where another Enigma operator on the other end would set his machine to the same settings and put in the gobbledygook. The second operator would write down those letters, but this time when the lights lit up, the message would be translated back into regular German. So in this way, the Nazi submarines called U-boats were wreaking havoc across the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, sinking convoys of allied ships. They would communicate to each other without allies knowing what they were saying or their location. The brilliant mathematicians and scientists were not enough on the allied side to crack the code. In fact, later on, the Nazis added a fourth rotor to make it even more complicated. The Bletchley Park team, along with others from other allied nations, had been successful making machines to decode the messages if only they knew the settings. They needed the code books. And so it was the day before Halloween, 1942, and a British aircraft had spotted off the Egyptian coast a U-boat, quietly making its way to attack a convoy headed to a nearby British base. Five destroyers, including the HMS Petard, were called to locate and destroy the U-boat. Shortly after noon, the U-boat is spotted by the destroyers. And over the next 10 hours, the destroyers chased the U-boat around the Mediterranean, dropping depth charges to damage the sub, hopefully enough to make it surface. And so finally, around 10 p.m., U-boat 559 had been taking on enough water that it's floating at an angle, and the U-boat commander has to bring it to the surface or risk sinking to the bottom of the sea. Now, this picture is not the exact scene because it was 10 o'clock at night, but this will give you a representation. And so as the Nazi crew jumps from the ship, the damaged sub, they were supposed to open a series of vents 
which would fill the boat with water enough that it would sink, keeping all their military secrets and the Enigma codebooks secret. However, in their frantic escape, the levers had been bent and the vents couldn't open and allowed the sub to stay afloat long enough for four British soldiers to bravely board the boat, including 16-year-old Tommy Brown, who had lied about his age so that he could join the Navy. And so they boarded the darkened boat as it listed in the water and brought up three loads of books and documents. They threw the books and documents into a nearby boat and they went down one final trip. Sadly, only Ken LaCroix and Tommy Brown made it out of U-559 that final trip because as water gushed down the conning tower, First Lieutenant Tony Fasson and Seaman Colin Grazer would go down with the sub as it plunged to the depths of the sea. But the mission had been a success. In amongst the books was a code book for weather reports. It was what the Bletchley Park team needed to set the machines to crack the Nazi codes in time for the Allies to use them. As Hugh Sabin Montefiore says in his book Enigma, the mines at Bletchley Park could not break Germany's naval Enigma code using brain power alone. But with the code books in Britain's hand, everything changed. Maybe today you feel like the code breakers at Bletchley Park. You continue to put your best effort out there day in and day out. Your best at home to love your family, your spouse, your kids. You put your best effort forward at work. Yet things still don't seem to pan out like you think they should. The settings keep getting changed. And now you feel disoriented or disillusioned. You can't quite break through to find the meaning or the purpose or the groove that you are looking for. Maybe you're a bit frustrated with God's plan or lack thereof for your life. Or maybe you've had bad experiences inside the church. No, that doesn't happen. Um, and so it is on Easter Sunday, the disciples felt a similar way. Just after Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples were confused, bewildered, that their messianic leader who had done all these mighty works was defeated by the very powers he was destined to defeat. They thought he was the one they had been waiting for. Now hope seemed to be lost. How to make sense of it all? In our text for today, Luke picks up the story of two of these disciples who appear to have given up hope and left town, most likely walking back home. Nothing left to do in Jerusalem. Jesus is dead. But by the end of their journey, they are excited, racing back to the disciples in Jerusalem. So what changed? What was the key to their reversal? So we're in Luke chapter 24, and we're going to start in verse 13 today, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels, said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Okay, let's stop there for a minute and talk about the context of today's story before diving into the providential conversation that they have with Jesus. In the timeline, where are we? It's still Easter Sunday. Mary and the others have already gone to the tomb and found it empty, and they went back to the disciples and told them all they saw, or rather, didn't see. And now we have two followers of Jesus who are setting out from Jerusalem, walking to Emmaus, about seven miles. One of the travelers is named Cleopas. This could be Clopas from John chapter 19, which would then make the other traveler most likely Cleopas' wife, Mary, who was at Calvary on Friday. However, scholars are not sure how popular Cleopas was for a baby name in AD 0, so we don't know for sure. And for whatever reason, Luke leaves the other person unnamed. So Cleopas and the other traveler, in my mind, are clearly well-connected followers of Christ. They are not in the group of 12, but in my opinion, they are a part of the 72. I think this because in verse 22, we find out they had already heard of Mary and the other women's encounter at the tomb. They had heard of Peter and John also going to the tomb. These events had only just happened, and they already knew. And I don't think the disciples would have been broadcasting this information throughout Jerusalem because, in fact, they're locked, scared, in the upper room. So I don't think they put out any press releases or tweets saying that Jesus was missing. Another reason I think that they're well-connected, close followers of Jesus is that they know where to find the disciples when they come back to Jerusalem. And so these two disciples that are traveling to Emmaus, they were fully on board with Jesus' movement. Most likely, they had been following Jesus around for more than just the last week in Jerusalem. They believed he was the Messiah. They say, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, not to belabor the point, because you heard me tell it on Palm Sunday, and you heard Katrina last week, but the disciples expected Jesus to bring the heat, to crush the Romans and free Israel like God did in Egypt. Just as God redeemed Israel and brought them out of Egypt into the promised land, the Messiah would redeem Israel from their oppressors and allow them to live in the promised land and live and flourish there. So Jesus dying on a Roman cross was completely antithetical to that expectation. If you had any hope of someone being the Messiah of Israel, that person dying on a cross was the surest sign of defeat you could have. It was over. So I think our two characters are leaving Jerusalem and going home. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that they are disappointed by Jesus' death. They heard Jesus was not in the tomb, but that doesn't make them think that he's alive. Instead, I think they've given up on the whole endeavor and decided the smartest thing to do is go home, pray, and wait for the next Messiah. Because if for a moment they thought that Jesus was alive or had another plan they would not have left Jerusalem. They would still be there waiting. So our two travelers are disillusioned, disappointed, and leaving the mission. 
As I was asking before, can anyone relate? Is anyone a little disappointed where things are headed or disillusioned about how things are turning out at work, school, your relationships, your family, the nation, even at Riverside? So let's turn back to our text for today, now in verse 25, and see what Jesus, that mysterious traveler, has to say in response. He, being Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus responds to their disappointment in how he came as the Messiah, dying on the cross, with how foolish you are and how slow to believe. It seems a little harsh, but these two, while not part of the twelve, were followers of Jesus, most likely for some time, and had heard Jesus say, at least on a number of occasions, that he was to go and die in Jerusalem and be raised again on the third day. Now, they might not have understood what that meant, clearly, uh, but it reminded me of one day in church history class while I was in seminary at Moody, uh, Dr. Matthews asked the class some question about the division of Israel, the kingdom of Israel and, and the timeline of the Old Testament, and no one in the class knew it. So he presented, proceeded to spend the rest of the three-hour class drawing the whole timeline of the Old Testament on 20 feet of whiteboard from memory with dates. I still have those notes. Then at the end he said, someone in seminary should know all of that from memory. You are not undergrads. It was a stinging rebuke, but one from having Dr. Matthews and other classes I knew was meant to encourage us about what was important. So Jesus gives him a little nudge, a wake-up call to pay attention to what he's about to say. And the famous line he says there on the screen highlighted, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is Luke's point I believe in including this story. How do we make sense of the Old Testament? The stories, the trials, the exiles, the prophecy of what to come. What is God doing in the world and with us? What's the Messiah like? What will he be doing? Who will he be? All of those answers are tied up in Jesus. Jesus is the key to understanding the Bible. He is the code book of the enigma. You can have all of the brain power of the Pharisees and the scholars, all the brain power of Alan Turing and the Bletchley Park team, but without the code book, without the key, it leaves you confused, disappointed, and disillusioned. So, of course, Luke records this most important of all sermons in Bible studies. Nope, nothing, not one line more about what Jesus said. Of all the details to leave out, that part has always annoyed me about this passage. But there is hope for us yet. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. So I think that whatever Jesus said that day is repeated in some way throughout the remainder of the New Testament, fleshed out by Peter, by Paul, the author of Hebrews, among others. And so let's look at a few ways we can make sense of this idea that Jesus is the key to understanding the entirety of the scriptures. 
in order to do this, I'm only going to use things from the Old Testament that are later mentioned in the New Testament to go along with what I was just saying. And I have a little help from Tony Evans, who in his systematic theology textbook lays out two general ways we can see Jesus in the Old Testament. The first is prophecies of Jesus, and the second is types or typology. And so the first way is prophecy. Now, to be fair to Luke, since that's the book that we're studying, I'm only going to reference prophecies concerning the Messiah that are mentioned elsewhere in Luke by Jesus. So, what are some of these prophecies? One, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. Jesus, by providential Roman census, is born in Bethlehem. Luke, make sure we know this in Luke chapter 2. Another one, the Messiah would be a descendant of David. We see this in both Samuel and Isaiah. And Luke makes sure to have a genealogy showing his line to David in Luke chapter 3. Now, at Jesus' first public ministry, he reads from the scrolls in the synagogue, and he chooses Isaiah 61. And then he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing claiming all of the prophecies and combined in Isaiah through that reading. And so we learn that Jesus has care for the poor and the outcast, those in prison, as we see in Isaiah 61. But not only that, but also, like we said, the prophecies, like those in Isaiah 53, that the servant would paradoxically, confusingly, be a suffering servant that would take all of the sins of the people upon themselves and through their scourging, we would be healed. And so today we understand and cherish the meaning, but you can understand that that would be quite strange to the, to the ancient Israelites. Then we spoke on this detail on Palm Sunday that Jesus is careful to ride a donkey into the city, fulfilling Zechariah 9, and thereby claiming all the messianic references spoken of in Zechariah that we went over. And while on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a direct quote from Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. If, if you have any doubt in your mind that the Messiah was to come and suffer and die, read, read Psalm 22. I mean, it will, there it is right there. Now, the Messiah would, would rise again. He would be resurrected, predicted in Psalm 16, 8 through 12, or, or through 11. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Luke brings this up in chapter 23. Now, sign of Jonah. This one's a little bit mysterious, but Jesus makes reference to it in Luke 12, that this generation would only given the sign of Jonah. Jonah, in some ways, is dead in the whale for three days and is spit back out on the third day to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to Nineveh, Gentiles. And so Jonah is a good transition to the next way that we see Jesus in the scriptures, and that is types or typology. Type is a people or an event or a thing, a ritual that happened in the Old Testament that really is just shadows of Jesus, as Paul says in Colossians 2. So through the lens of Jesus, we can see these types from the Old Testament for what they're really meant to be, fulfilled completely in Jesus. The first one is Adam. The Apostle Paul is the one to flesh this one out in Romans chapter 5. Adam was our stand-in for all of humanity. So when Adam sins, we all fall into sin, so that by one man all sinned. 
That's not too fair, Paul says, but oh, wait. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Jesus is the perfect Adam, living how Adam and we are supposed to live in peace with God and allowing us to be at peace with God. So we see Jesus in the story of Adam. We see Jesus in the Aaronic priesthood. So Aaron and his family are chosen from among the people to represent the nation before God as priests. It was one man who could enter through the curtain to the most holy place in God's throne room in the temple. And that man represented the people before the Father, bringing their sacrifices before God. Hebrews 10 says that, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Jesus is that perfect priest, that he is in the true temple, God's throne room, on our behalf, mediating before God for us, and he brings the perfect sacrifice. Also, a typology of, of Jesus in the Old Testament, the temple itself, or the tabernacle, the temporary temple. The temple was the place where sacrifices were made, sin atoned for, where the priest, as a representative of the people, could enter into the presence of God. It was where God met his people. In Jesus, we, the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, are being built into a holy temple for God to live. Jesus is God's presence. He is the perfect temple. It continues. The last one we'll talk about, Sabbath rest, from the very beginning, had been the practice of taking a day of rest from our work. Jesus, through his substitutionary death, pays all the wages of our sin. Work is completed. We can rest completely from striving to earn God's favor. Jesus is the perfect rest from that work. By resting in him, we can take an eternal Sabbath from striving to earn God's approval. And there are many, many more. Hebrews is a masterclass in typology of Jesus in the Old Testament, if that part interests you. And so Cleopas and his friend have just spent a few hours listening to what is most likely the best Bible study ever given. And then what happens? What change is affected? Let's turn now back to the text in verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. 
And so as they near their destination, they invite this mysterious traveler to come and stay with them. For the day is almost over. Jesus agrees, and when they sit down for dinner, Jesus takes the bread, offers the prayer. He then breaks it, and he passes it out. And it is in this action that they recognize that it's Jesus. So was it the way that Jesus did this that they had seen before, maybe at the feeding of the 5,000? Yes, possibly. But the text reads more that their eyes were opened, not by them, but by God. And then, of course, Jesus disappears. They realize in that moment that Jesus is alive. He has risen from the grave. The women were right. They immediately return to Jerusalem to tell the disciples the fantastic news. They find the disciples together talking about Peter, who had seen Jesus by now. They then to proceed all that had hap- tell them all that had happened to them and that they had recognized him once he broke the bread. So what can we take from this nice little story of Jesus being a little cheeky, revealing himself to these two followers? For whatever reason, Luke does not include the name of the second traveler. That gives us, I think, the opportunity to insert ourselves into the journey. It could be any follower. Either this was Luke's intention, or the person was so not notable that by the time this was written down, they had been forgotten. And maybe you feel that way too. Too insignificant in the whole scheme of the world and life as to be forgotten. But here we see Jesus seeking out that person and revealing himself to them, saying, I am alive, there is hope. Don't give up. You might say, hey, Joey, this is a nice story and all, but is Jesus ever going to magically appear to me and explain everything? I would say uh, odds are you're correct. Uh, The odds that Jesus will physically appear to you in your lifetime are slim to none. But what I want to point out about the reaction is they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They did not say, didn't our hearts burn within us the moment we recognized it was Jesus? It was the explanation of the scriptures that made their hearts burn. This should be a huge encouragement and challenge to us because we have access to the scriptures and to the New Testament as well. I believe the treasures that Jesus shared that day on the way to Emmaus are fully contained within the New Testament scriptures, fleshed out by the early followers of the church to study forever. I don't think there are any secrets left unsaid from that fateful Bible study on the way to Emmaus. What we saw Jesus doing that day is what the Holy Spirit does now. The Holy Spirit's job, among other things, is to illuminate the scriptures as we read and study them so that our hearts may also burn within us. The key to understanding who the Messiah is, what God is doing in the world, and what God is doing in your life, where things are headed, is Jesus. But you don't have to wait for him to appear. He is found right here in the Word. The same relief, the same joy, the same invigorating energy that we see in the travelers is available to us. So many believers wish that God would speak to them audibly. Show them where to go, tell them what to do. Wouldn't that make it easier? I don't think so. 
If God was frequently speaking to people, how could you know what to believe? You wouldn't be able to check what they said, God said to them against anything. I could come in here and say, God spoke to me on the way here that for every $500 you give me today, he will give you $5,000 later on this year by faith. We have enough swindlers masquerading as believers. No, God instead speaks through his Holy Spirit and most often speaks through the Holy Spirit, illuminating his word to you. If you want to hear God speak into your everyday existence more often, eat this book. Study it. Read it. Memorize chunks of it. Cherish it. The Holy Spirit will all of a sudden become a chatty Cathy. You might not always like what he has to say, but the word will penetrate. And here are a few simple, simple ways to get into studying the word. The first is to believe it is possible for you to get something out of it. I did not do any Greek or Hebrew studying to, to write this sermon. None. I used my Bible. I think I checked one of my study Bibles. I used two popular level commentaries that I bought at Vaughn's used a long time ago. I checked out Leon Morris's commentary on Luke from the library. I checked out that Enigma book from the library. I read some John Calvin commentaries for free online, but I didn't use any of those things at the end of the day. So it, it doesn't take an, a, a master's degree to, to get something out of the Word of God because it's the Holy Spirit that reveals it to us. The followers didn't recognize Jesus, not because he looked differently, but because God had blinded them in that moment. And then it is in that moment when he breaks the bread that God opens their eyes so that they can see. <clears throat> It is God that opens our eyes as we read the scriptures. <clears throat> so the first is to believe that it is possible that you can get something out of studying the word, that you have the key, the code book, to understanding some of the weird stuff that goes on in there, that it's Jesus. He makes sense of it. The second is get a study Bible if you don't have one, preferably not written by one person. Get a study Bible written by a group of people. Here's another easy one. Maybe attend Crystal Curtis's class on Bible reading. It's only one Sunday for two hours, or Saturday, rather. And here's the last one. Next week, I'm preaching on post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So you can start there this week. Just go to the last chapter of each of the four Gospels. There's where you'll find the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. The questions we're going to ask are, why did Jesus show up in such and such a way? Or what is he trying to tell us? And why does it matter today? So if you need some place to start in the word, start there. And then if you find something cool, email me so I can, you know, use it. Because I haven't written anything yet for next week. <laughs> the key to understanding how Jesus was the Messiah how God had always planned for him to come to earth, to die a sacrificial death, and to rise again were not hidden. They were in the text. If we just had the key, the settings, the code book. If we learn to see Jesus as the end of all things, as the key to understanding the enigma of life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you this morning recognizing that so often we are like the two travelers that have given up on it all and we're heading back home to Emmaus. And so we plead in your mercy through your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate the scriptures to our hearts that they could burn within us that fire, that Jesus, you are the Messiah, that you died on the cross for us, that you rose again on the third day, defeating the true enemy, death, that we too might experience newness of life and that we might live in communion with you forever. Father, I pray this week that you would encourage us and motivate us and excite us to open your scriptures, your word, your letters to us, and that we would find you there, that we would understand afresh your love and grace and mercy for us, and that you would help us to make sense of some of the enigmas of our lives. And so we come to you asking God that you would meet us there in your word knowing that you will. We thank you, we praise you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.